If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25 as we continue on in our series in the book of Genesis this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 25. Now, uh, this morning we're going to be breaking up the, the reading of the chapter into three, three sections corresponding with our, our three points for the sermon. And uh, those three points are as follows. First of all, be ready for death. Be ready for death. Secondly, God's election is sovereign. God's election is sovereign. And thirdly, value your spiritual blessings. Value your spiritual blessings. So first of all, let's begin reading. We'll read the first 18 verses here of Genesis 25. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, she bore to him Zimram, Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, and Epher, and Hanak, and Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heath. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Abdil, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Massa, and Hadan, and Tima, and Jeter, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. Now, here in roughly the first half of Genesis chapter 25, what we see is the, the further fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Abraham. The Lord's promise to Abraham, given in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, was that Abraham would become the father of a multitude of nations, not merely of a single nation, but of a multitude. The promise of Genesis 17:20 was that the Lord would bless Ishmael and would make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. That was likewise the promise of the Lord to Hagar in Genesis 21:18 that he would make a nation of Ishmael. And here, uh, especially in verses 12 through 18, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises to uh, Ishmael, that he would become a great nation. 
And we also see another multitude coming from Abraham. And so in the first part of the chapter, we see that Abraham took another wife named Keturah. Now, interpreters are somewhat divided as to whether this event happened chronologically after the death of Sarah or whether Moses is here stepping back in time and uh, relating event, an event that chronologically happened earlier. I don't think the scripture is entirely clear on that point. But what is clear is that Abraham did take another wife. Whether she was taken while Sarah was alive or after Sarah was dead, she evidently was regarded as a wife of a lower degree than Sarah. We see her referred to as a concubine here in verse 6 of Genesis 25 and also in 1 Chronicles 132. She is referred to as a concubine. And by her, Abraham had six sons, those six that are mentioned there in verse 2. And we're told that Abraham gave gifts to these sons while he was yet alive, and he sent them away from Isaac. He recognized that Isaac was the child of promise, and he sent them away to the east, seemingly to Arabia and or places nearby. And then we see in verses 7 through 10 the death of Abraham. This was a great man, a man of faith, a man who trusted God, a man who obeyed God, walked with God. But he lived and died at the age of 175. We see there in verse 8 that he breathed his last and died. He lived to a good old age. He was an old man. And we find there that he was satisfied. And even that is fulfillment of the word which the Lord had spoken to him. In Genesis 15, when that occasion was that Abraham uh, had the sacrifice and divided the, the animals, and while Abraham fell into a deep sleep or something of that nature, and the Lord came and passed through the midst of the, the pieces of the animals, the Lord promised Abraham and said, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And so it was for Abraham, as we find here in Genesis 25. Now Abraham had certainly experienced many of the good things that this world has to offer physically and materially. But what was more important for Abraham is that he walked with God. The command of the Lord in Genesis 17:1 to Abraham was that he should walk before God and be blameless. And Abraham did walk before God. He was a righteous man who was justified by his faith and was vindicated by his works. His righteous works showed that he was righteous by faith. Though he enjoyed the great blessings of God and had received great promises, he still lived, as we saw a few weeks ago, as a stranger and a sojourner here on earth. He dwelt in a tent when not everybody lived in tents. The people around him lived in cities and settlements. But Abraham was looking for the city that has foundations, the eternal city to come, whose architect and builder is God. And that's the way to live, so as to be satisfied when you die. Abraham was living so as to be ready to die. And the question then for us is, are you, am I, living in such a way that when, in God's good timing, death comes for us, We'll be ready to go. Now, all of us naturally don't like to think of dying, and that's fine. But we do need to think about it sometimes because we are all going to die, and we need to be ready for it. We may not die at an old age, 
But if we walk before God in fellowship with him and are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, and if we are like Abraham looking for that city which is to come, then we can be ready. Back in early 2020, the nine-year-old son of an old friend of mine died from a brain tumor. He had been diagnosed with this tumor when he was only eight. And in his obituary, it was, was written that he faced this tumor with courage, informed by his Christian faith, saying, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm ready. Speaking of the Lord, he said, he is my refuge and my stronghold. And when he was asked what he wanted an obituary or an epitaph of him to say, he responded by saying, this guy's not here. Heaven, here I come. I'm going to see my real dad. This was an eight or nine-year-old boy, and he could speak that way. This is the way to live, so that whether we are young or old, we're ready to go when death, the last enemy, comes for us. And the way to begin is by trusting in Jesus, by seeking forgiveness of our sins through faith in him who died and rose again for us. In order to be ready for death, you must trust in Jesus. You must turn away from our sins. And if you have more questions about what this means, I'd love to talk with you more after the service because this is the heart of who we are as Christians, trusting in Christ, turning away from our sins, seeking to walk with him here and be ready at any time for when death may come for us in God's good timing. Now let's look ahead to our text And we'll pick up reading in verse 19. We'll read down through verse 26 as we come to our second point that God's election is sovereign. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, this is a uh, significant turning point here in the narrative of Genesis because largely for the last 12 or 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, the focus has been on Abraham. But now Abraham is dead, the descendants of Ishmael are listed out, and now we turn to focus on Isaac here for another chunk of the narrative of Genesis. And so here we are looking at the next generation, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Now we get the details here of, of when they were married. They were married when Isaac was 40 years old. And Rebekah was barren for 
nearly the first 20 years of their marriage. As we, and uh, as we know from verse 26, that Isaac was 60 years old when the twin boys were born. Now, as we look at the history of God's people, it is noteworthy, I think, that time and again we find this theme coming up, that God promises uh, descendants to, uh, to, to Abraham, promises descendants through, through Isaac, the blessing is passed on to Jacob, and yet again and again we find this theme of, of barrenness coming up. Sarah was barren. Rebecca now is barren. Later on, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was barren. And this is a problem. Because just as the promise to Abraham that through Isaac your descendants shall be named depended for its fulfillment on Isaac having a wife, so also it depends on this wife being able to conceive. Time and again, the natural circumstances, as it were, have raised their head against the fulfillment of God's purposes. But what appears to be problematic to us it's not a problem at all for God, as our Lord Jesus Christ expressed it. With God, all things are possible. He said that in Matthew 19, 26. I think Matthew Poole was onto something when he noted in this case of Rebecca. He said, She was barren, as diverse of those holy women were, that were progenitors of Christ, that it might appear that that sacred stock was propagated more by the virtue of God's grace and promise than by the power of nature. It wasn't because these people were naturally strong in and of themselves. It was, it was God's promise and grace that was working. And so this is no problem for the Lord. Isaac prayed, and the Lord answered him. Now, we're not given a specific time frame about this as to when Isaac began praying for Rebekah. We don't know if he started praying at year 19 of their marriage or if he had been praying all 20 years before he got this answer from God in the conception uh, by Rebekah. For all we can tell, though, he didn't turn aside to the false expedient of a concubine, as Abraham had done. There's no hint of that in the narrative. Maybe he had learned something from his father's mistake with Hagar in this regard. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his barren wife, and his barren wife conceived in answer to God's prayer. And she conceived not one child, but two. There were twins within her, and she felt these children struggling, even in the womb. And so she inquired of the Lord about this. She's curious, and the Lord answered. And his words there in verse 23 are, Two nations are in your womb, and two people will be separated from your body. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, we'll consider the significance of those words here in just a moment. But, but first, notice with me the actual birth of these two boys. These boys are born there to Rebecca, and even in their birth, there are some things about them that kind of foreshadowed and pointed ahead toward coming events in their lives. Esau comes out red and hairy all over. Later on, we'll see in this chapter that a significant event of his life was that of desiring a red stew. So much so that he traded his birthright as the firstborn to get that stew. And some have taken his, his hairiness with which he came out all covered with hair as perhaps pointing toward his personal disposition, that being of a more fleshly or animalish disposition. Now Jacob, on the other hand, came out holding on to his brother's heel. 
He was thus named Jacob, which means one who takes by the heel or one who, who supplants, who kind of pulls the other one back so that he can get up there in his place. He was trying to take his brother's place even when they were being born, even when they were coming out of the womb. And this, of course, would not be the last time. Esau would later say in Genesis 27:36, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. And thus, even in the appearance of these boys and their behavior at birth, the Lord saw fit to give some foreshadowings of what was yet to come. And we'll, we'll consider the first episode of Jacob's supplanting of Esau here in our, when we come to our third point. But for now, we need to, to jump back to verse 23, to those words of the Lord to Rebekah, where we see the sovereignty of God's election, that God chose Jacob and not Esau. And this was not only in regard to the service that they would render to the Lord, but also in regard to salvation. Esau was a godless man. Jacob, with all of his faults and sins, and there were, there were a bunch, and we'll see them as we go through Genesis, but with all of that, he was a man who trusted in the Lord. He was a man who had faith and was justified by that faith. He was chosen unto salvation, and Esau was not. Jacob's descendants were the chosen people. The descendants of Esau were not. Why was it? Was it because Jacob was better? Was it because Jacob would be better in the future? Well, no. And so we read those words in Romans 9 this morning. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by the one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. God chooses whom he pleases, he saves whom he will. Unless we think that there's something unjust or not right about this, Paul continues there in Romans chapter 9 and helps us to rightly frame that in our minds. He says, what shall we say then? There is not injustice in God, is there? This is where we might naturally think, well, how can God do this? This seems unfair. And so Paul asks the question, there's not injustice in God, is there? And he says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This is God's sovereign choice of his people for salvation. He chooses whom he wills and he draws them to himself. And this example of Jacob and Esau is particularly instructive, I think, because here we have two men born of the same mother, born of the same father, conceived at the same time, the twins. And so there's, there's the, the difference between the one being chosen and the other not has nothing to do with genetics, has nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with who your parents are, has nothing to do with that. Being that this was announced to Rebekah before they were born, it was, as Paul says, before they had done anything, either good or bad. So the choice wasn't based on works that were done. And neither would it be based on future choices of Jacob or Esau, as we'll see. Uh, working through the, the book of Genesis, there were a lot of things in Jacob's life that were not good at all, not at all praiseworthy. God's choice was based on nothing in Jacob. Rather, as Romans 9 puts it, it was so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I think Charles Spurgeon said it well when he said, I can tell you the reason why God loved Jacob. It is sovereign grace. 
There was nothing in Jacob that could make God love him. There was everything about him that might have made God hate him, as much as he did Esau and a great deal more. But it was because God was infinitely gracious that he loved Jacob, because he is sovereign in his dispensation of this grace that he chose Jacob as the object of that love. There was, there could have been nothing in Jacob that made God love him. And the only reason why God loved him must have been because of his own grace, because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And rest assured, the only reason why any one of us can hope to be saved is this, the sovereign grace of God. There is no reason why I should be saved or why you should be saved, but God's own merciful heart and God's own omnipotent will. This word of the Lord to Rebecca is a reminder that our salvation is all of grace and is all dependent upon God's choice. And we should praise God for this and give him glory. And in considering this, we should make something else equally clear, that unless God had so chosen us and drawn us, we wouldn't have come to him. We wouldn't choose to come were it not his gracious will to make us willing to come to him and trust in him and serve him. Jesus himself says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's how naturally sinful and rebellious we are toward God. God the Father draws his people toward Christ. He leads us tenderly toward the captain of our salvation. It is, as we find in Romans 2, 4, his kindness that leads us to repentance. From this, it follows that his choice of some and passing over of others is such that there are none who truly desire to come to Christ who do not come. Those who truly desire to come to Christ have even that desire given to them by God and may come and do come and will come because they are drawn by God to Christ. To borrow the language of our church confession of faith, this doctrine promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, Trusting God, an active imitation of his free mercy, that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree. Now let's, let's think about this. This doctrine of God choosing his people promotes humility. It does so because it reminds us of our own sinfulness and our own absolute dependence on the grace of God for salvation. It reminds us that we in ourselves are nothing. This promotes love in us in that we are drawn to love God who first loved us. Isn't that what John says in 1 John? That we love him because he first loved us. This promotes prayer and praise in that realizing the goodness and grace of God and his choice of us, we seek him in prayer and we praise him for this undeserved gift. It promotes trust in that we see how God has already overcome our sinful desires against him by his grace and led us to trust in Christ. We see his work in, in changing our hearts and our lives and we are led to trust him for the rest of our life. We trust him that he will continue conforming us daily to the image of Christ, making us more and more like Jesus, that he will keep us and hold us fast to the end. This doctrine promotes the active imitation of God's mercy in that we see his mercy given to undeserving sinners like us, and then we recognize that to whom much is given, much is now required. How could we then refuse to forgive someone who has wronged us when we ourselves deserved absolutely zero 
forgiveness from God. And yet he has so mercifully provided for us this mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Having seen the tender heart of God toward us, we ourselves become then tender-hearted toward others. And we forgive, just as God in Christ has also forgiven us, as we find in Ephesians 4.32. We see the great wickedness and folly of that servant that Jesus described in Matthew 18 who had been forgiven a, a nearly infinite debt and would subsequently not forgive someone who owed him a very small debt and would not be patient until that debt was paid. Jesus said that that servant was handed over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus said, my heavenly father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The doctrine of God's sovereign election encourages also the use of means in the highest degree in that not only does Jesus say no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus also said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus says come and if you want to come then come. Come to Jesus Right now, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost, is what he says, what we find in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The doctrine of God's election also encourages the use of means in that it encourages us to make our calling and election sure. We know that how God's people are supposed to live. We see that clearly in the Bible, and therefore we seek to make sure that we are, in fact, living like God's people live. We seek to make the most of the spiritual blessings and benefits that we have received. And this is where the remainder of the chapter directs our attention, is to valuing our spiritual blessings. And so let's look down to verses 27 through, through 34 and, and keep reading there. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now here in these verses we see the characteristics of these two brothers as they grew up. You see that Esau becomes a man of the open country, man of the wild, hunter. He is great outdoorsman, you might say. Jacob, on the other hand, is a, is a peaceful man. He is a, a homebody. My father once spoke of someone and said that he might be a great indoorsman, and maybe that, uh, maybe that would be applicable to Jacob. Or at the very least, we can say that he stays around where the tents are instead of going out into the open country, living like a... a uh, hunter like his, his brother Esau. And then in verse 28, and this is important, we also see the, the opposite affinities 
of the two parents for these two boys. And it's been pointed out by some interpreters of this passage that Isaac and Rebekah have a particular fondness for the boy that is least like them. In other words, they talk about opposites attracting, and that seems to be uh, perhaps what is going on here with respect to the way Isaac and Rebekah set their affections on these two boys. From all that we can see from the book of Genesis, Isaac seems to be a rather quiet type of man. We don't read of him gathering the men of his household and going out on a military campaign like we did Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14, nor do we read of anything much that would lead us to believe that Isaac is a particularly aggressive go-getter, that he's a strong type A personality, as, as we might say. Isaac's favorite is, is Esau. Esau is kind of, the, kind of the wild man of the family. He's the man out there hunting and bringing home the wild game, and Isaac enjoys eating it. He's like, yeah, that's, that's my boy right there. Rebecca, on the other hand, loved Jacob. Now, what was the opposite affinities there? One writer characterized Rebecca by saying that she had the stronger nature, was persistent, energetic, and managed her husband to her heart's content. Now that may be, that may be a little bit of a sweeping judgment, but just given the snippets of family life, of the family life of Isaac and Rebecca that, that we see in the book of Genesis, that estimation could be about right. At the very least, you can understand how someone would form that opinion of Rebecca. And Rebecca, being this active, energetic woman, fixes her affections on the quiet boy, the mild boy, Jacob. And then in verses 29 through 34, we have this, this incident in which Jacob gets Esau to sell him his birthright. Esau was the firstborn. The birthright was naturally his, but Jacob supplants him, grasps the heel, pulls him down so that he could get ahead. So what was this? Well, Esau had been out doing what he does. He's out hunting, comes home hungry, and his nostrils smelled something yummy there in the camp. And so he says to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. He's hungry, and the hot food is right there in front of him. Now, haven't you found yourself ever in similar circumstances? You've been out working or doing something, and you smell the burgers, you smell the fried chicken, you smell the barbecue, or maybe it's cornbread and vegetable soup, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. You've been active, you've worked up a good appetite, and then the food is right there. It smells good, and you want it. That was Esau. He wanted the food that Jacob had cooked. And Jacob, the supplanter, now shows his character here. He's ready to scheme and so to supplant. Now, in what he does, there's nothing that is explicitly deceitful or dishonest. He tells Esau explicitly the terms of the deal. But what was going on here was an unjust taking advantage of his brother, we might liken it to those, those payday loan companies that prey on people who are vulnerable and take, in it, take advantage of them by charging an exorbitant amount of interest. I assume they tell you up front at those places what they're going to charge you for interest in terms of a percentage. They might not say that means X amount of dollars two weeks from now, but my sense is that, uh, that they don't hide the interest rate that they are going to charge. The point is that it's not right to prey on vulnerable people nor to prey on strong people in those moments when they are vulnerable, as Jacob was doing here. Only Jacob wasn't charging exorbitant interest or anything of that sort. 
He was going for such something that was much more fundamental, namely the family birthright. Now, for us in our context, we might do well to consider what is a birthright? What, is, what does this even mean? For them, it meant, on the one hand, having, having dignity and authority uh, over the rest of the siblings in the family. It meant having a special blessing from the father. Now, in, in later times, as a matter of the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 21.17, it would also mean having a double portion of uh, the, the family inheritance. In this case, particularly, uh, the, the birthright flowing from, from Isaac to either Esau or Jacob, it meant having the promises for your descendants concerning the inheritance of the land of Canaan, and also the promise of the blessing that the entire world would be blessed through their seed, the, the promise of the Christ who was to come. And so in this particular birthright, there is, uh, there's both a material aspect, a, a physical aspect to it, and also a spiritual aspect of it. And Jacob, at this point in his life, doesn't seem to be particularly motivated by spiritual concerns, but he may well have been motivated by his mother in this. Rebecca certainly knew the promise of God that the, that the older would serve the younger, and just so happens the younger is her favorite son. And so given what we see of Rebecca's scheming later on about procuring Isaac's blessing for Jacob, it's not inconceivable to think that she may have talked to Jacob about this kind of thing beforehand. And Esau here is motivated by hunger, certainly not spiritual concerns. But we should note here that Esau is not even motivated by long-term, worldly-wise thinking. If, if Esau had been concerned with worldly wealth and with earthly prosperity, he would have slowed down a little bit and would thought, thought about this and said no. If you think about it, for a man as prosperous as Isaac was, surely Jacob's lentil stew was not the only food to be found among the tents of Isaac's family and household. And so, in this sense, Esau can't even be reckoned as a worldly wise man. In regard to worldly things, he is a fool. And if, it's, that's, if that's the case in regard to worldly things, certainly his condition is much worse in regard to spiritual things. Esau's conduct here reminds us actually of those whom Jude described in Jude verse 10 in the New Testament when he said, These men revile things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Esau was simply living in the moment. He was living a fleshly carpe diem, a fleshly seize the day. He simply wanted to satisfy his brutish thinking his, his brutish instincts and then keep on moving with life with no thought for the future. And isn't that kind of the way, uh, kind of the way that verse, uh, verse 34 in the text runs? Jacob gave Esau the bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Right? He sat down, did his eating, went on his way. This to him, yeah, forget the, forget the birthright, I'm hungry. That's, that's all that matters. He's just living in the moment with no thought for the future. Now the takeaway lesson from this passage is clear. Don't be like Esau. Now at the risk of sounding like a mere moralist, I do not hesitate to say that that is the important lesson that we need to be gleaning from this part of the, the Genesis narrative. Now when we read the historical narratives of the Bible, we certainly want to see and certainly should be seeing more than simply 
be like the good guy, don't be like the bad guy. Obviously, we want to see the bigger picture, and we want to see what a particular passage teaches us about God and His grace and His justice and how different things in the Old Testament foreshadow the coming of Christ and so on. We should see more than simply be like the good guy, don't be like the bad guy. But even still, with that said, sometimes the moral lesson, don't be like the bad guy, stands out in a particularly strong way. Sometimes that is the lesson to which Scripture itself points us. Certainly that is the case here. We saw that in that passage from Hebrews 12 that our brother John read for us this morning. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. The point is that Here in Genesis chapter 25, we see an immoral and godless man in the person of Esau. Esau was someone who was just focused on what would satisfy his fleshly desire in the moment. In the words of verse 34, he despised his birthright. That wasn't important to him. It wouldn't satisfy his fleshly desires in the moment. And you and I are warned in Hebrews 12 against doing the same thing that Esau does here. We're warned against being immoral and godless like Esau, and against despising our birthright. Now, what forms might this take? How can we despise our birthright? Well, first we need to be clear that when we're talking about a birthright as Christians, we're not talking about the things that we inherit from our parents. We're talking about our birthright in the family of God. If we're in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We're sons of God, joint heirs with Christ, and we have a lot of other family members, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And so how might we despise our birthright? Well, it can take many, many forms. It can take a straight-up beastly, brutish form, just satisfying the desires of the flesh, right? Just fill in the blank. Gluttony, drunkenness, illicit drug use, Pornography, various forms of sexual immorality, living simply for the pleasure of the body as if there is no tomorrow and as if there is no God who will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. And yes, professing Christians are warned about this kind of thing because these are the kinds of sins into which professing Christians can fall. Don't do it. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So don't do it. Don't be deceived by these things. A professing Christian who falls into these things is, in that sense, very much like Esau. In Christ, you stand as an heir of much better things than the passing pleasures of sin. In Christ, you stand as an heir to eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You stand as an heir of a place in the Father's house where there are many mansions where Christ has already gone to prepare a place for you. It was said by David in Psalm 36, 8 and 9, They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life in your light, 
we see light. But if you turn your back on such an inheritance for the buzz of getting drunk or the thrill of getting high or any other excitement that is brought to you by sin, you're doing the same thing that Esau did. You're turning your back on your glorious birthright, all the while pursuing the basest possible fleshly instincts. Again, see that there is no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau made a bad bargain, to put it mildly. Now those are, those are blatant ways of despising your birthright, but there are others as well, right? Because as believers in Christ, we have great privileges. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God and we have fellowship with him. And as part of our birthright, we also have fellowship with other believers, with other Christians. God's intention for his people is that we walk in horizontal fellowship with our fellow Christians while we walk and have fellowship together with God himself. To despise the fellowship with God that is rightly ours or the fellowship with one another that is rightly ours is, in a way, a despising of our birthright. If we devalue our participation in the life of the church, if we limit our service or give no service to the fellow members of the body of Christ, we are not valuing our birthright as we ought to. Our birthright is to be part of the family of God, and therefore we should live like it. Part of being in the family is showing up to the family gatherings, right? We should take care of our nieces and nephews, so to speak. That is to say, we should help out with the sons and daughters of our brothers and sisters in the church. You can help out with the nieces and nephews, the sons and daughters of your brothers and sisters in Christ by helping out in Sunday school or volunteering for Awana on Sunday nights. And in saying all of that, I'm not trying to advocate a legalistic piety that says if you're not at every stated church service, then you're sinning. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that, that we're belittling and devaluing great blessings that are ours if we're not fellowshipping, loving one another, serving one another. And also we are neglecting and despising our birthright if we make little of the vertical fellowship that is rightly ours with God. If we refuse to read the word of God or make little of it or refuse to think about it, refuse to meditate on it, refuse to talk about it, or if we refuse to instruct our families in the word of God. We can despise our birthright if we refuse to pray. As many as have received Christ, John says in John chapter 1, we've received the right to become children of God. And our Father speaks to us by his word. We have the privilege of addressing God in prayer. So let's not despise our birthright. Let's not be godless and immoral like Esau. Rather, may God grant that we be such as come to Christ and trust in him and then cherish our birthright and make full use of it, rejoicing in our fellowship with God here and serving the family of God now, all the while anticipating the joyous eternity that we will inherit with God forever. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the teaching and the, the warnings and exhortations that come to us in your word. And Lord, we, we ask that we would learn a lesson here from, from Genesis 25, that we'd be ready 
for death, that we would be ready by trusting in Christ, that we would worship you and praise you for your great grace which you had on us and in which you have drawn us from sin to yourself. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would learn not to despise our birthright, not to be immoral or godless like Esau. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from, from such wickedness and lead us rather in the paths of obedience, the paths of grace and righteousness. We ask your blessing upon us and your help in Jesus' name. Amen.